Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Today, with a message from uh, one of our elders, Hans Hess. It wasn't until I was uh, about 26 or 27 years old that something happened to me that really made me understand that God cares about every square inch of my life, including my giving and my finances. Because I think at the time I was probably a little bit lonely and uh, a little bit, you know, restless, I just had this habit of spending money that I didn't have on credit cards. And I remember I was at my job, I, I worked through my, both of my educations, both my undergraduate education and my master's education. I was at my job and I remember having a free moment of time and all of a sudden the fact that I had spent a bunch of money that I didn't have, it turned out to be about $2,500 at the time, it just overwhelmed me and I felt really bad about it and guilty. And I remember sitting there at my desk crying and just apologizing to the Lord for what I had done, that I had been kind of reckless with my finances. In a, just a simple prayer, I asked him to help me just to start over and to not uh, do what I had done, to not be reckless in my spending. One week later, I got a letter in the mail. And the letter came from a friend, uh, a married couple, who were friends back here on the peninsula. I hadn't spoken with them in about, uh, probably at that point, two and a half years. The letter said, Dear Hans, uh, the Lord has recently blessed us with some extra income, and we've given a tithe to our church, but we feel as if He's instructed us to give you $2,500. Please find a $2,500 check enclosed. <laughs> And it was, it was amazing to me, right? I mean, it was the exact amount of my debt. And God came in and just wiped it out. I learned that God does care about my giving, and He does care about my financial situation. And I also learned that there was somebody else out there who was praying about what to do with their money. And these faithful believers decided not only to give back a tithe to their church, but they also were responsive enough to the Lord to write me a check for $2,500, not even knowing that that was what I needed. Sometimes in our lives, we, I think we think of blessings, you know, as financial. There's a tendency to do that. God has blessed me in so many other ways, starting with a believing family who nurtured my faith from you know, four years old on, bringing me to Carmel Presbyterian Church, learning about Jesus. The first time I had a substantive question about Jesus was after I came out of the fireside room. And, and a wonderful family and friends who have encouraged me all my life and who've been willing to speak truth into my life. God has also blessed me financially from time to time. And all of that is amazing. So I think it's only right that we give back to God, not just 10% or 15% or whatever of our income, but 
really what he wants from us is our whole lives. He wants us, and that's the ultimate tithe. Money is just a part of it, but the ultimate tithe is giving him your attention and your obedience and your love. Thank you, Hans. Hans will be doing autographs afterwards with you. <laughs> a beautiful story, just um, fantastic reminder. You know, there are lots of accounts out there like that. I've read them in books and heard them from people where God comes through with a specific amount at a precise time. God wants to use money to develop your faith. The devil wants to use money to get your attention off God, to get you to neglect him, to get you to have either greed or worry. Um, this sermon is not going to be about money, but we have said we'd keep you kind of informed. We told you about Christmas. It was our best Christmas giving since like five years. But since then, the trend has been very downward. And so if our regular giving doesn't increase over the next couple of months, uh, the elders will probably need to make some relatively big uh, changes to our plans in terms of how we serve people here in becoming disciples, how we reach out to our community. So we really need everyone to, um, who considers this their church, if you're just visiting, this isn't for you, to give regularly to the work that God's doing here at CPC. Some of you I know that um, have never engaged in that. If you've been waiting, this would be a good time. Um, I'm very confident that God will provide what we need. He always has. Uh, here at CPC, he always does. Um, but I hope you'll think and pray about supporting what God's doing here as kind of a spiritual discipline, as a healthy habit, I would encourage you to invest in what God is doing here so that you kind of join in the joy when we see a video like Hans is just then, and we think that when he was four years old, he was here, and there were, I don't know if in this service, but certainly several people in the previous service, they helped do that. They helped make that possible for Hans. That's part of their legacy, and it gives them joy when they see that. Last week, we had a video of a a uh, high school student, and he was talking about, you know, being here, learning more about Jesus. And when you're involved serving, when you're involved giving, that gives you greater joy. You become part of that process. So if you're not currently giving, um, please think and pray about starting. The Bible talks about giving proportionally, giving regularly. If you're like Hans and you need to adjust some of your expenses, we have some great tools for that uh, that we'd love to um, show you. I encourage people, you know, start with 1% or 2% of your income, kind of gradually work up to 10%. That's kind of the biblical and historical practice. And then watch what God does here at CPC and watch what he does to your financial health, as Hans even mentioned, and watch what God does in your heart. If we prayerfully and cheerfully give God and ask him to use that to transform our hearts, Actually, the Bible says where your treasure goes, your heart's going to follow. You'll become more passionate about the ministry here. Your faith will also increase as you see God provide for your needs. Your contentment will increase as you actually spend less. Your worship will improve because you'll be doing it as an act of worship. Hans mentioned, you know, you may be blessed in other areas. It might not be financial. It could be your health. It could be the ministry you have among your people and neighbors. Hans did mention being blessed especially by his family um, that's a good segue into what actually is today's message. So it's not about money, it's about family. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that um, you'd calm our hearts, you'd keep distraction away, you'd keep whatever might keep us from engaging with you now away, and you would just 
come and invade us. Uh, work powerfully in this room to heal, to help us understand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hans said that one of the biggest blessings from early on was his family. What if your family's not a blessing? Or, or, or at best, it's a mixed blessing. Our families often provide us with huge amounts of joy. This is Janelle Grace Duncan, born a week ago today. Next slide, there she is, a little dolled up there. She's a big one, eight pounds, five ounces. And this is a picture of her family uh, with her father, mother, and two older brothers. Um, family provides us with some of our greatest joys, some of our greatest blessings. A couple times already this year, I have referred back to Romans 12, 10, where there's the, the one place where the word philostorgos or storgoi is used. Uh, just like the Eskimos have a lot of different names for different kinds of snow, the Greek language has more names for different kinds of love, agape, unconditional commitment to someone's best, phileo, affection like Philadelphia, eros, passion. Uh, there's others, philostorgois comes from philo and storge. Storge is the word for family love, love for family. Why do we love our family? Most of us are familiar with the current theory of evolution. It's changed over the years, but the current theory is that random mutations give, some, give something a competitive edge. Its descendants are then the fittest and they survive. It's the survival of the fittest. Well, where does storge, love for family, fit into that theory? Storge works against evolution very often because it motivates parents to invest enormous amounts of resources and energy in children who are not the fittest, none of you, because, um, just because they love them. Now, I'm totally against what I'm about to hypothesize about. God's totally against it, but just for argument's sake, if people only invested in what was perceived as the top 20% of children and got rid of the rest, the whole human race, in theory, would become fitter, more competitive. Now, you may be aware that in the ancient world, there was a less drastic option of that. In Sparta, you get the name Spartans, any child, especially if he was male, that just wasn't kind of perfect and strong, set him outside for the animals or the exposure to kill him. Romans had a less picky version where the patriarch of the family had the right to, if a kid was born and looked sickly, or oftentimes females, because didn't want to invest as much in a female, didn't bring as big a return to the family, just set them out there to die. From the very beginning, the Christian church has believed this to be evil, to be sin, that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore of greatest value, that no baby born or unborn is to be thrown away because it will be too much trouble or inconvenient or just isn't quite perfect. From the beginning, Christians rescued the babies that Roman patriarchs left out to die. They raised them as their own. Storge, family love, motivated many a Spartan mother or a Roman mother to weep when her less-than-perfect child was left to die from exposure or wild animals. Why? Why do we love 
all of our children and all of our grandchildren? Why do we sacrifice so much time and energy for them? Why do we sacrifice for our siblings or our aging parents, even siblings with addictions or, or mental illness? Why do we love family members that are often pretty unlovable? You probably have somebody in your family you wouldn't be seen dead with if they weren't your family. They're just not interesting or they're irritating or they're weird or they're whatever it might be and the only reason you love them is storge. That's just there. Somebody who believes in evolution might probably say something like, well, humanity as a whole survives better when all parents, siblings, and children look out for their family. Sure, in some specific cases, less competitive individuals survive. But overall, storge has been selected into humans as a competitive trait that has helped humans rise to our current dominant position. I can understand that argument, but a human species more like the Spartans or the Romans would have been even more dominant. I find a different argument much more compelling. That the complexity that we see, including storge, family love, implies that we were designed. It's called the argument by design that the incredible, irreducible complexity of what we observe implies that we were designed. You know what the most complex artifact we have ever found in the universe is, right? It's your brain. More complex than anything. And that's where storge, love for family, takes place in your, in your brain. The Bible claims that the designer of your brain, this all-powerful, wise, loving, all-knowing, triune God that we talk about here every Sunday, that that's who designed it. So if you were created in the image of God with the capacity to love in a way that is truly meaningful beyond simply the chemical reactions that are taking place in your brain, that requires that there be a transcendent being a God that gives actual meaning to love. Especially things like storge and agape and phileo and even aesthetic appreciation. For them to have true transcendent meaning, it has to go beyond what's chemically happening in your brain. If a transcendent loving God does not exist, I have never heard even close to a reasonable argument that what I feel when I look at my grandkids might possibly be transcendent. It's just chemicals. The Bible actually says that love is the most important of all traits. It says at one point that God is love, not meaning that he's not smart or just or triune, but just meaning that's perhaps the most important trait that he has. Einstein thought the most important question was, is the universe a friendly place? But because God is love, the universe is not just a friendly place. It's the best universe of all possible universes. Now you might say, well, what about all the evil? That's true. God's taking care of that. But as he's taking care of the evil, he invites you into the hero's journey of working alongside Jesus to do good to people now and for all eternity. It's, God is so powerful that he turns the tables on evil and he's able to say it is the best of all possible universes because everything will work to good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Amazing statement. And the love of our transcendent God gives our love 
meaning, transcendence that goes beyond the chemical reactions taking place in our brains. But whether or not you're here as a follower of Jesus today, and I assume some are and some aren't, you already knew that. Because deep down, you know that the love that you feel for people, the aesthetic appreciation you have for music or art or a sunset, there's something transcendent, especially about storge, love of family. The Apostle Paul wrote, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Goes on to say, if you don't have love, if that's not your motivation, nothing counts. That's how important love is. Without love, everything we do misses the mark. Why, almost without exception, did our designer, the God of the Bible, design us so that we all love our children, our parents, and our siblings, at least initially. Well, storge is innately good because God loves people and to, to love them is a good thing and helps them, but it is also a clue. And if you're here today and you're not quite convinced about Jesus, I, this, this part is for you. The part about giving was not. This part is for you. Storge is a clue. It is a huge hint because you already know deep down inside that what you feel, that your love, it is not simply chemical. It is actually transcendent in meaning. And if you follow that to its logical conclusion, the only way that can be true is if there is a transcendent God. You were made in his image. That's why you feel storge. When I showed this picture earlier this week to a good friend in the congregation, um, initially when he glanced at it, he thought, oh, that's Rick in the left. And then he did a double take and he realized, no, that's not Rick. Because there is a strong family resemblance. You have a strong family resemblance to your Heavenly Father. You have the image of your Heavenly Father imprinted on your soul. Because of that, you love others. It's one of the most important things about you, and it is a huge clue that the God of the Bible is real. You know, it gives you something here that convinces you. And, and your storge love for your children or your parents or your siblings, it is a mere shadow of the love that God feels for his children that he feels for you. So if you've not yet chosen to follow Jesus, as we've been talking about, as Hans mentioned, we mentioned the last two weeks, with everything you are and everything you have, don't miss out. Don't miss the clues. Don't miss the evidence. You know that the love you feel is real. And that's because God exists. Love him back. He loves you. Don't miss out. Now, I've been visiting some of our small groups, and I had the privilege of going to a wonderful small group Thursday, and um, we were talking about last week's message and, and how, you know, that line we had on the, on the podium when I moved it back and forth and, and how it's really tough for us not to feel like some people really are awful and they deserve to be on that side of the line and kind of feel judgmental toward them. Um, especially, we said, you know, when it's like child molesters or drug dealers. And the worst, what's the worst? When they hurt your kids. 
or your grandkids. See, Storge, love of family, it makes you incredibly vulnerable, doesn't it? I know many older adults who thought they'd raise their kids and then their adult kids made some really bad choices and it has completely changed the lives of those adults. If someone hurts our family, it hurts us. If our family is in pain, we are in pain. But this is the one I want to focus on today. When our family hurts us, we experience what may be the worst pain of our lives. And so the question is, what was Jesus' relationship with his family like? Did his storge love bring him great joy or great pain? You probably know the story that when Jesus was 12, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was the, the, his family's habit. And probably the whole, a whole bunch of people from Nazareth, probably not everybody, they all went together as a big group and they walked for probably several days. And at night they would probably camp uh, because they couldn't afford to everybody. And there weren't room in all the inns during Passover when everybody's moving around. And so they would go and then they'd stay in Jerusalem for the feast and then they'd come back. So it was perfectly reasonable that when they came back, the parents just assumed that Jesus was with the group. It wasn't like, um, you know, Home Alone where they abandoned Kevin at home and it wasn't like when you forgot your kid that time at the rest stop. Um, it's much harder when you have five kids like we do to keep track. But, but it wasn't unusual, it wasn't unreasonable that, that of course Jesus is with the group and then they get to stop that evening after a day of walking and he doesn't come to be with the family and they ask and nobody's seen him. And they walk back an entire day, probably the whole family, and says they search for three days and they find him in the temple talking with the religious leaders. And Mary is very upset, but Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? How would that have come across to the parents or the siblings? Uh, probably didn't endear him to his siblings. His elder, eldest brother is called James. Is not to be confused with James, the disciple who's the brother of John, who is beheaded in the book of Acts by King Herod. This is James, the brother of Jesus. How do you think James felt Younger than Jesus, has to walk back a whole day to Jerusalem and then another day back to get to where they got. Plus, they looked around in Jerusalem. Do you think this endeared him to him? Remember, back in Nazareth, no one would have ever forgotten that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, was illegitimate. That was, today in America, more than half of all the children born are conceived out of wedlock. By the grace of God, we've, we don't hold that against kids, but back then, oh my goodness, it was an honor-based society. Jesus was a walking testament that his mother had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and to all of the other kids, it dishonors the family. He might have been shunned as he was growing up. He was probably made fun of. Not a nice time. How did that make James feel as he grew up in Nazareth about his big brother? When Jesus' ministry got super busy, so busy, all these people wanting to be healed, going late into the night, so much so it says he was barely eating or not even eating, and his family gets upset, and they decide they're going to do an intervention. And they come, and they say, we're going to seize him. And you know what they say about him? Because he's out of his mind. That's what they say. What's probably another time, they come to see Jesus but they can't even get to see him because the crowds are so great, so they get a message to him, hey, family's here to see you. 
And you know how Jesus responds? They say, your mother and brothers are here. He says, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. How do you think that made James feel about Jesus? We read in the book of John, now the Jews' feast of, we'll put it on screen, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Would you open a Bible to Luke chapter 4 or an app? It's on page 859, right at the bottom of the page. Our greatest joys, our greatest wounds often come from our immediate family. In Jesus' family, in Jesus' village, much more than your experience of your family today, we have family, we have kids that live far away from us. We don't see them that often. It's our culture today. Back then, everybody stayed. Everybody did what dad did. It was the tight-knit, extended family. You stuck together. You protected the family honor in an honor-based society. It was your family, do or die. With that in mind, I'm going to read a longer passage to you. And there are lots of important truths in, in here, and I'm not going to go into them all. I'm going to just focus on one thing. And it's not even explicit in the passage. I, I think what I'm going to tell you is correct, but I've never heard anybody else say it, so you can take a look and see what you think. Makes a lot of sense to me. Starting at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now watch how this turns. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal, the, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. 
When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that, he, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I've been to where they think that cliff was. It's nasty. Fall on your head, you die. If not, you break something, which back then could mean you die. Where was James? Where were Jesus' brothers when this was taking place? If their big brother was in town speaking at the synagogue, they would have been there. We would expect that they would have fought their way through the mob to rescue their brother. They would never let a crowd take him to a cliff to kill him. Why didn't they intervene? How would you feel if your brothers didn't come to your rescue in a situation like that? Why? Well, we already saw they didn't believe in Jesus. Also, Jesus was a constant reminder of the dishonor of illegitimacy on their family. They had at one point thought he was crazy. And Jesus himself had practically disowned them by not receiving them when they came to visit and saying, no, these people are my mother and brother and sisters. It might have happened afterwards or before, but either way, um, it shows what was going on in the relationship. I think the most likely explanation is that his brothers decided not to intervene. Not to fight for Jesus. Because they'd rejected him. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah, which we now know is Jesus, we'll put it on screen, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We all know he was rejected by the religious leaders. At one point in John 6, he's got thousands of followers and many of them leave because of some things that Jesus is saying. Reject him. He's betrayed with a kiss by one of his followers. But perhaps what hurt him the deepest was being rejected by his own family. Some of you have experienced that. By your parents, by your siblings, by your own children. You know that God experiences rejection by his children constantly, and it breaks his heart. Jesus was rejected by his own brothers. Now, when an acquaintance rejects us, what do we say? Well, they don't know me that well. But when family rejects us, we all want to be known and still loved. We don't want to be loved for our money or our good looks or our accomplishments. Our souls want to be loved for who we are. Our souls want to be found beautiful and loved. And, and the reason you want that is because you were created in God's image. You see, God, he also wants to be loved for who he is, not because of the goodies he gives you, not because of what he does for you. He wants you to see his character and see that he's beautiful and love him. Jesus did not write off his brother James. Soon after the resurrection, he appeared to James specifically, where we read in 1 Corinthians. Uh, James became a believer and follower. Storge love, family love, was not enough for James to believe in Jesus. 
that took the resurrection to turn him around. Unlike most of us, one of the most beautiful characteristics of Jesus is how he handles rejection. He doesn't reject back. He he keeps on loving us, keeps on nudging us to join him, become part of his family. Jesus didn't hold things against James. Instead, he made his brother into, he gave his brother a very strategic place in his church. He wrote the book of James, and he was one of the most important leaders in the early church. That's because Jesus transforms enemies into family, even family who have become enemies. And when families hurt each other and even maybe fall apart, he brings healing. I, wonderful testimony at the small group I got to visit this week of just a family member who's, God's just done amazing things after years of praying. So encouraging. He can put families back together again. He can heal you of your deepest wounds that maybe your family gave you. He healed my wounds. Will you ask him to heal yours? It takes supernatural power often. But will you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the supernatural power to enable you to forgive from the heart, to no longer be shackled to whatever that wound is that was done against you, holding it against him, but instead just to let it go. Forgive them, wish them the very best, pray for them. Love on them. Don't respond to rejection like most people do. Respond like Jesus. Love. Forgive. Maybe even embrace. As the band comes to lead us, would you just would you bow your heads and think for a moment? Would you just think about the, your deepest wounds? Maybe they came from family. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to forgive from the heart? Maybe even to restore a relationship. It's a beautiful thing when we forgive. Holy Spirit, would you please invade us now? Would you come and work in our hearts? Would you, even if we don't want to forgive, would you help us to want to? Would you give us this, the power to extend to others the grace that you have given to us? Would, we, would you give us the ability to love those who have treated us like enemies, especially if they were family? Would you put people, if they're far away, put people in their lives who love you, who are good ambassadors, and if they don't, if they're not yet your follower, would you, would you work, Lord? Would you help them to see how beautiful you are and win over their hearts? And Lord, would you help us to love them well? Thank you for how you treated James, Jesus. Help us to treat others that way.
Now as we express our worship to you, as we learn to trust you more by giving back to you a portion of what we receive from you, we ask that you would use that and you would bless many, many people as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. I encourage you to plan to come to the picnic next week, see if you can bring somebody. It's a great opportunity. And now be filled with the Holy Spirit that you might have the supernatural power to forgive whatever has been done to you, especially if it's by family, and that you might return back love, that you might be an ambassador of Jesus that they see and they go, there's just something different about you. Be filled with the Spirit. Go in all the power you need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.